0: You're now listening to The Working Poet Radio Show. This is your host, Joseph Lappin, and I'm here with David L. Ulan at the Miami Book Fair. David L. Ulan is a book critic of the Los Angeles Times, a 2015 Guggenheim Fellow. He is the author or editor of nine books, including Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles, The Novella Labyrinth, The Lost Art of Reading, Why Books Matter in a Distracted Time, and The Library of of America's Writing Los Angeles, a literary anthology, which won a California Book Award. David, thanks so much for being here. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So I'm really excited to to talk about sidewalking and your quest to understand Los Angeles and just sort of walking in general around a city. Um, But even though it's written about Los Angeles... New York is still a huge presence in this book. Take me back to New York and your favorite walk. <laughs> As a kid, hopefully. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I just got I just
1: was in New York this week, so for me, um, I mean, the walks I like in New York, I still take them. are long, like the long walks, basically. I grew up on the Upper East Side. In fact, when I go visit now, I still stay. My parents still uh, live in that apartment. So I, I visit them. And I spend a lot of time downtown. So the walks I used to always take, or uh, my favorite, I guess if I had a favorite walk, I don't know if I ever quite thought of it that way, but the walks I used to always take would be these sort of long walks from Lower Manhattan to Upper Manhattan. Um, and I still do that. I mean, I was spending a lot of time... I was there for you know for, for some work stuff, and I was spending a lot of time down in <clears throat> Lower Manhattan, Tribeca, um, Village, Union Square area, and then I would sort of walk up or down, you know, depending on where I was. Usually I'd walk back because I would be rushing to get somewhere, so I'd take mm-hmm. the subway down. But I would take these long walks back, particularly at night. I love night walking in New York. And a long walk through the city up, say... Um, Park Avenue South through uh, around, I mean, around the edges of Grand Central, um, Vanderbilt Place. And then, uh, you know, uh, sort of maybe moving over to Fifth Avenue where the hotels are, walking Mm up, walking up alongside the park or even walking up through the park, walking, sort of using the park as a walking landscape as much as a recreational landscape Mm -hmm. coming up, say, Seventh Avenue to the bottom of the park and then kind of meandering your way through the park. Um, to either side, those are the those are the walks that are kind of the New York
0: walks that I was imprinted on, or so, that were imprinted on me, I guess. So you know, we're about exploring that creative journey. You know that that the path to your career, to your writing, to the book critic. What was it like growing up? Did you have a lot of creative energy in your family, or? Yes and no. It's an interesting question. I grew up in a house full of books. My parents are not
1: um, are not in the arts and none of their friends were in the arts. I didn't know any working artists or any. I I had a couple of friends whose parents, um, one who was a painter. And but but they were sort of as a kid, they were just parents. You know, they just was that was a parent with a different kind of job. So I didn't really wasn't exposed to um, to artists or the arts directly in that way. Um, But I grew up in a house full of books. My father's a big reader, still is a big reader. So thousands, you know, there were always books in the house. And he had what, I don't think it was completely articulated, but was essentially an open shelf policy. So any book, you know, no books were off limits. Mm -hmm. So I was able to kind of pull whatever he, whatever was on his shelves and look at it at whatever age. When I was... I don't know, probably 11, 12, when I started to really make the jump into, you know, adult literature, I often would read what he was reading because I, you know, well, on one hand it was something we could talk about, but I, although again, I wasn't thinking about that that consciously, but you know, I looked up to him, I was interested in what he was reading, I would read books he was reading. So that kind of idea of books, not just as something you do by yourself, but books as a conversation sort of Mm. began, I think that way. Uh, my mother was an English teacher so she or had been an English teacher she wasn't when I was that age but so she was really you know she used to redline all my papers for school oh really uh, which was a drove me crazy at the time but in fact what she did was taught me the mechanics of writing in some way so i often say he taught me how to read she taught me how to write in in a way um but my grandfather my father's father who he was not particularly close with had been a jazz pianist um in the 20s and 30s Mm -hmm. and then had basically stopped touring and stopped working for the most part part, partly after my dad was born partly because he was uh he, I think my father said he got fired. His, my his talking about his father. He got fired from every job he ever worked. He's he had a little bit of an anger problem. Oh, so,
0: yeah.
1: uh, but he played with all you know. He'd played with all sorts of people, and he'd been a professional. I mean, he'd done sessions, he'd done stuff. And when I knew him, when he was older, he was uh, he was teaching piano lessons. But we would get together. We weren't that close. He and my father weren't that close, so I didn't see him that often. But he, I remember he had this big reel to reel tape recorder, and he had all these instruments, and you know my. Lasting childhood memories of him, or he and I sitting in his living room, kind of banging around on a piano and the trumpet, like making tapes together,
0: which was really fun. So, is that the moment you think you were inspired for this creative life, or can you recall the moment that you felt you were called towards this creative side of things? Well, I don't. I mean, I don't. I I really only started thinking
1: about my grandfather, about that particular grandfather, and that whether that had any influence recently. I actually didn't think about it much at the time. For me. It was books you know I think really I was in love with as I said I grew up around books but I loved them I mean I, I still love them I love the feel of them I loved having them around I loved reading them I you know I think that when I first realized that books were you know that somebody made books right That books you know writing books could be a job it wasn't you know the books weren't just this object that existed mm-hmm. in the world but somebody actually had to make them and that that could be what you did for a living I that I that that, that blew my mind, I, I, that idea or that revelation blew my mind and I never wanted to do anything else. So I wanted to be a writer from about the age of seven. Really? Yeah. And, um, never wavered. And when I was a kid, like when I was nine, 10, you know, I used to actually, I loved all the stuff. So like if I turned in a, you know, a, a paper for school, let's say I had to turn in like a big project, you know, we would have these projects and we had to turn in like a big, like a 15 page research paper or something. Mm-hmm. It's like sixth, seventh grade. I would design it as a you know i would like create like an imprint oh. and like do the copyright page whatever and like break it into chapters and make it a book you know so i was always that was always what i, I mean i always wanted to be a writer in fact it's funny a friend of mine from high school um who i lost touch with but just got back in touch with mm-hmm. um he was saying you know it's so weird you always you know like you know i remember you were 15
0: saying like i'm gonna be a writer well, so. i mean that's weird because there's so many people i would say that have that i'm surprised it's that young but I mean, really, what we're trying to explore is, you know, when you have that dream, that goal, well, how do you make that happen? What's the next step, and how do you build that life? So, I know you—you you went to Los Angeles. Yeah. What was that transition like? And you're trying to pursue this, you know, this career. You moved to a new city. What were the struggles there?
1: Well, I had done it before. I mean, what I will say is, just before the, uh, you know, for me, I don't know how you do. it. I mean, I know how I did it, and I think everybody does it differently. I think the one thing that you know, is a common threat. Certainly for me, is either um, stubbornness or unwillingness to say no. When I was in college, um, I went to when I was a freshman in college, I went to career planning, and one and only time I ever went to career counseling um, or academic counseling or whatever it was. And the the counselor said to me, "What do you want to do?" We're looking at he's like very heavy on English classes. Um, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, "I want to be a writer." And he said, nobody gets to be a writer. Oh, he did? And I said, I was 19 and I was arrogant, um, but I was not wrong. I said to him, I don't know, I walk into a bookstore... There's 10,000 books on the shelf, so somebody gets to be a writer. You know, like, why not me? And I th- And then he said, you, sh- you know, you should take an economics class, and I never went back to career counseling. So, I, you know, but I, but I think there's a way that that kind of stubbornness. My parents were always yeah. saying to me, like, you need a fallback position, and I kept saying to them, you know, if I have a fallback position, I'll use it. So I don't want a fallback position. I want to have to
0: do this. When I got out of college, I decided not to go to graduate school. But you Partly. felt you were different, though, in that, that counselor meeting, right? There was an element that there, I am a different, I, I'm almost, I have a different path than what you're saying. I, I don't know if I felt that I was
1: different as much as I just felt like this is what I was going to do. I would just, it didn't occur to me that I wouldn't be able to do it. Never? You yeah. never had any doubts about it? Along I mean, well, there are always, always doubts about whether you're going to, but it was the thing, I couldn't, I, Let me, I guess I couldn't imagine doing something else. Like, I couldn't imagine how you would spend your days doing something. I never had a job I liked. -hmm. You know, except in terms of this kind of stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. So I knew I was going to want to be around books. Now, whether you're going to be able to make a living or not, I don't know. You know, when I got out of college, like I said, I didn't go to graduate school because I was tired of school, but I also wanted to try and make a living as a writer. And I didn't for a long time. You know, I lived, I worked in a bookstore. You know, I I lived. What bookstore? I worked at Shakespeare and Company in Lower Manhattan. Oh, okay. Um, I was actually part of the staff that opened that store. Oh, nice. And then watched it. I mean, years later, it just just closed. It was actually really, it felt like a death in the family. Mm -hmm. Um, But, There was, you know, so I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to do it for a living, but I knew I was, it was just how I interacted with the world. I was always either reading, finding out things by virtue of reading about them or finding out what I thought or felt by virtue of writing. Mm -hmm. I was always writing, writing not just for school, but always writing my own stuff. I always, even as, you know, starting at like 10, 11, 12, I always had a, um, you know, I always had a novel in the works, right? None of them ever got finished or, you know, but I was always sort of working on something. And so it just kind of was how I moved through the world. In a lot of ways, I'm moving through the world in a a more refined version of the way I was moving through the world when I was 11 or 12 years old. So it was always there. I think for me, it was more a matter of refining it and then maybe learning what my instincts were and trusting my instincts, um, learning how to finish, learning how to sit, learning how to keep myself in the chair, um, not be distracted, learning how to... You know, there's a lot of glamour in the idea of being a writer, of being an artist. There's not a lot of glamour in the practice of it. So that idea of kind of separating from that, the notion into the reality, I mean, that was a long, long learning curve. But then you also have to find a way to survive too, right? You have to find a way to survive. And so for me... The first thing was working in the bookstore. Um, I met a bunch of writers there, both writers who were published who were coming through and um, also writers, you know, everybody who worked in, at least in my experience, everybody who worked in the bookstore was a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was like a built-in community and we were all starting to talk about stuff and I got exposed to a lot of things that were really interesting. I learned about publications and I kind of met, I mean, some of the people there some of the writers who would cycle in the writers from the community were you know they became kind of my early my first mentors in the sense mm-hmm. like they were the first people who took me seriously as a writer even though I wasn't publishing at, at that point they you know like they, they we would have conversations they would like listen to me and mm-hmm. you know so there was a sense there that was really important in the sense of like I, I could belong in this right I could do this these are just people like me you know mm-hmm. like we go watch baseball games and- so then why did you leave New York
0: then if this was such a strong community to you hey, well I mean
1: I was on the edges of it I was not able to make a living in New York. My wife, there's many many reasons. A short version of why I left New York is that my was my wife was acting and there was no work in New York and she was also really fried on New York. And I had wanted to move to California anyway. I had I was I had spent time in California before. Uh, more Northern California than Southern, but I had liked it and I wanted to go back there. Mm-hmm. I always felt a pull to the place. I didn't want to be one of those New Yorkers who never leaves the island of Manhattan, yeah. um, which I felt in some ways that I was. And my career, such as it was, I don't even want to necessarily call it that, was early stages and I felt there were like a hundred million people like me in New York there were dozens of people like me who were you know interested in writing the same kind of stuff I was who were interested in the same kind of journalism Mm -hmm. or or review culture it was was, you know there was just there were too many of us it was oversaturated and so I went I didn't I went to California not planning to stay for more than a couple years I figured we'd stay for a couple years and check it out and you know, and then one thing led to another, and um, I had been interested in it as a literary landscape before I ever got there. I really, My best friend lived there, and he was running the book section of a alt, little alt-weekly called the Los Angeles Reader. Mm-hmm. So I was writing reviews for them, but through him, I'd go out and visit, and I'd kind of get a sense of what was going on. Um, was that I, a struggle in the beginning? To be there? It was a terrible struggle, yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I talked about a little bit in the book. I was, um, it was, I couldn't figure it out. It was too. I was used to the energy of New York. Um, I was used to the kind of critical mass of New York, the the compression of New York, Mm -hmm. and um, like Los Angeles. When I first got there, seemed. Really diffuse and unfocused, and um, no energy. It felt like it had no energy. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to be able to see through that surface and understand that there was an energy there, but it just was an energy that it wasn't. It wasn't as obvious in mm-hmm. some way. It wasn't right on the street. It was. It was. Um, and so, and it was hard to meet people. Or I found. I mean, I knew people because I had a community of friends yeah. out there. But outside of that community, it was sort of hard to get to know people.
0: Well, and this is the whole point of the book, right? You say it's sense-making. of Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by sense-making in terms of sidewalking in this project?
1: Well, I mean, I think what ended up happening was, first of all, we had one car, so I walked a lot. And I would have walked anyway because that was sort of the vernacular by which I understood Mm -hmm. urban life. But I think for me it was a matter of understanding or experiencing or engaging with the city as a place the rap on la is that there's no there there right there's no sense of place it's just this sort of disconnected um you know like suburban or exurban dystopia whatever i mean part of that's true part of it's not i mean i think one thing i you know all the cliches are true but they're not true mm-hmm. enough they're they're, they're well common. people were
0: surprised you were writing a book that was thematically related to walking in, in la, LA yeah, so. yeah
1: absolutely so But that walking really rooted me. I mean, partly it allowed me to make the city small, Mm -hmm. so that so it was understandable because I started you know I walking there's you know you're not gonna I mean I guess you could but you're not gonna walk from like Mid Wilshire to downtown Mm -hmm. You, you know so what is the boundary of your neighborhood what is the boundary of your community what is the boundary of place to me it's always been the boundary of what you can reasonably walk to Um, so I started to define my sense of the physical space of the city or the physical space of my city based on where I was walking and what I could get to. I was walking, I was working at, you know, we lived about a mile and a half from the reader's offices. So I'd walk there, you know, walk to the supermarket. I didn't think about it. It wasn't something that I was planning to write about um, or even thinking about in those terms. It was just seemed like a way to interact with the city. And it made the city real to me in Mm -hmm. a sense. When I first moved there, I never knew where I was. You know, I never knew, like every time I'd see a cluster of tall buildings, I'd be like, is that downtown? Sometimes it was downtown. Sometimes it was Culver City. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was uh, Universal City. And every, depending on where you were, so I never quite knew where I was. So walking first of all helped ground me in, in the place, mm-hmm. in the physical place, um, and then it kind of let me see where I was. I started to notice things. I started to see what you know, buildings, you know, the kinds of street level details that I always had experienced in other cities, but that, you know, the Los Angeles felt that, you know, the surfaces seemed too, too smooth. They, it seemed, they seemed difficult to penetrate. Mm -hmm. So it allowed me to kind of immerse in place. And I do, I think, I mean, again, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but looking back on it, I think that that was a big, part of my
0: acclimatizing to the city. So how does this relate to narrative? You say LA resists narrative. How does this relate to your quest to find a narrative to the city? Well, two things. I mean, I think, first of
1: all, cities tell stories about themselves, or cities, you know, they tell a story. Um, sometimes that story is what I would call like a master narrative uh-huh. Um You know, New York, I think, has a master narrative about, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. That Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, hierarchical, vertical striving. Um, You know, Chicago, city of broad-shouldered. I mean, these are kind of cliches, but those are sort of the master narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, Los Angeles doesn't really have a master narrative. I mean, I don't buy the film industry as a master narrative. It's part of the city, but it's not the only Mm -hmm. part of the city. I mean, you could say the culture of of reinvention is a master narrative, but I don't think that is true of everybody. I think that's a certain kind of narrative. There's a great... Line in in Richard Rodriguez's essay "Late Victorians," where he talks about um, he rejects the notion of California as kind of land's end. He says that's a very East Coast version. If you're coming to California from the east, yeah. then it is land's end because it's the end of the continent. But if you're coming to California from uh, from Asia, it, you know it's the beginning of the land. If you're coming to California from uh, from Mexico or south or you know, it, it's just you know, it's just the place it's north of you It's not so he's so he's really, I thought that essay the first time I read it was mind-blowing because it was it, it allowed me to really start thinking about perspective and how perspective defines narrative in that sense so for Los Angeles I had to find my own narrative. I think many people have to find their own Mm -hmm. narrative. I had to find my own way through the city. I had to find a way for it to make sense to me. So again, part of that had to do... This is one of the reasons New York is so present in the book. Part of that had to do with what I knew Mm -hmm. and what was familiar or what was comfortable to me or how I defined um, my own sense of, of cities. So I define cities on the basis of neighborhoods. I I mean, Los Angeles, I think is very much a city of neighborhoods, but I think the fact that I found that or sort of locked onto that had to do with the fact that I was looking for that also. So walking was your narrative. It was your way. Walking was a way of creating, um, creating a kind of a narrative. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what's interesting and actually quite resonant for me about Los Angeles now is that it doesn't have that master narrative. So we each, have to construct our own narrative. I think that's true of other places too, although maybe less obviously. But in terms of experiencing that and thinking about that in regard to Los Angeles, I've had to, I've learned or I've developed or learned that idea in regard just to kind of in in general. And I think we're always making narratives. I don't believe that there is any uber narrative in general, I don't, you know, I mean, you know, with the risk of sliding into philosophy, right? I don't believe that there is any larger meaning. I don't believe that there is any order. I think we live in a chaotic universe.
0: Um, Well, what about, because when you talk about, you're kind of making your narrative in Los Angeles, if you're going through that same way, I mean, can you make order? Can you make meaning? I think we all have to make meaning. That's what I'm saying. So I think we live in a chaotic universe with no uh,
1: overt meaning, right? Or no no external meaning right we have to bring meaning to we impose meaning and i and i think we have to impose meaning it, you know mean there's we can't live a meaningless life so um i'm very much in line with like say camus on the, and the existentialists on this in terms of you know we have to impose our own meaning right camus says we must imagine sisyphus happy that's sisyphus's yeah. narrative I love that right i love that essay right but that's that's sisyphus's narrative mm-hmm. in a certain sense I'm not saying that that's what Los Angeles, but I think in that sense, Los Angeles for me became a kind of physical, um, it became a physical way of, of thinking about that or realizing that, that I had to impose my own set of meanings on the city so that I could have a meaningful relationship with it so that my life there could have... Some kind of meaning. I needed the meaning. I imposed my own narratives on. We all do. I impose my own narratives on everything. We are always imposing narratives, and those narratives are always conditional in some in some way. And and it just seemed that Los Angeles is a kind of landscape that maybe a city that kind of wears its conditionality more overtly than other cities allowed me to really start immersing in those ideas. So this is what you mean by you know walking as a creative process. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you walk. At least I do. I walk. Uh, and notice things I wouldn't see otherwise I walk and I make connections that I might not make otherwise I walk as part of my creative process I mean I you know there are many different ways of walking one of the ways that I walk when I'm stuck I walk sometimes that means I pace my house yeah Sometimes it means I go around the block sometimes it means I go in the neighborhood it depends on um, you know it depends on where it depends on how what the problem is that I'm wrestling with you know I usually have a notebook in my pocket so if I get ideas I stop and write them down but there is something about the physic for me at least the physical activity of walking just that kind of repetitive physical movement that kind of I don't know puts me into a different kind of mental state and sometimes things that when I'm sitting at my
0: desk trying to figure out I can't get, mm-hmm. The physical movement kind of unlocks some stuff. I mean, I think a lot of people are probably struggling finding that part of their process. I mean, how do you go about finding that? How long did it take you to figure this out? It's always ongoing. I mean, walking, like I said, I mean,
1: you used to be showers. Einstein used to do it in the shower. He used to find, apparently, you know, Einstein got his ideas in the shower. Um, and I, you know, used to have that too. Again, I think there's a physical, right? I mean, there's something about that kind of repetitive physical motion. Um, using both sides of your body. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think it was. I don't know. That's an excellent question. I don't know how I figured it out. I think it was partly just intuition, and it was partly just um, process, and it was partly what was normal to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I often walk and and talk things out. Like often, I'll walk with my wife, and we'll talk things out. Whether it's like stuff that we're dealing with in life, or sometimes. Um, you know, we'll talk about, you know, I'll be working on something and I'll, I won't have a, I'll be like, I need to figure out what this is. And, you know, in in a way, and that's uh, an externalization of it in that sense, I think she's really, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to say it out loud to her. She's a sounding board, although sometimes I'll walk the streets and talk to myself about about it also. But there, I don't know. I mean, I think there is a way in which all of these processes are personal, different writers do it differently. I have a bunch of writer friends who also do the walking mm-hmm. who, you know, who do it through walking in that way. Other writers who do it in different ways, and I think that we have to find it. We have to find what works. I've been doing this for a long time, so a lot of these things developed over time and then and worked. And the process has changed. I mean, other, you know, as some aspects of it have been consistent throughout some aspects of the process have changed. Mm-hmm over time in, in, you know, in unexpected ways or change back. And so I think it's partly just being open to how the process operates and not trying to kind of put a box around it.
0: Great. So a couple more questions and we'll wrap it up. And, but, you know, what I'm really curious about is you talk about walks that you do consistently. What's a walk you would never do again in Los Angeles? <laughs> well, I, the one walk, I mean, the walk that I've been I've
1: talked about a little bit is when I first moved there, Nineteen ninety one, I was doing a bunch of freelancing, and one of the places I was freelancing for was Cream Magazine, the old rock and roll magazine that oh. published out of Detroit. And I had an assignment to go write about a band that was playing at the Troubadour. I can't even remember the name of the band now, but I went. So, and it was a Sunday night, and the Troubadour was about two miles from where I lived. So again, I'd been. In, I think this was. I think I'd been in, in California for like three or four months. So I figured, what the hell? Um, I'll walk up there and I'll do, you know, so I did. I walked up to the Troubadour and I uh, hung out and, you know, did the thing, saw the band, did the interviews, did whatever. Mm -hmm. Around midnight I came home. And walking home from the Troubadour through uh, and it's probably the same now but it's different but it's like 25 years ago walking home from the troubadour and down San Vicente through like the deserted Beverly Center and uh, Cedars and you know back home was the most desolate walk I've ever taken there was nobody on the street at all and I realized you know anything happens to me on the street here I'm on my own right there's no one's gonna see it Nothing's going to happen. So I don't know that I would say. I mean, I, I don't, I've never walked to the troubadour and back again. I now live a little bit further east, so it would be a longer walk. But, you know, that kind of walk I probably wouldn't do again. Um, but I'll do all sorts. I mean, I definitely walk. You know, the nearest light rail station to my house is down in the industrial flats like mm-hmm. um, Jefferson and La Cienega. Mm-hmm. So that's a I mean I, that's a pretty desolate walk but I do it on occasion I mean if I can get a ride to the train I always yeah. get a ride but I'll take the walk you know it's it's it, but it's a strange walk because I you know as far as city walks go it really is a walk through like the industrial flats you mm-hmm. know there's like power plants and you know like big box stores and not yeah. not much else you know yeah
0: well so kind of thinking about that theme there and this is uh, there, I could ask you questions about exile and Los Angeles but I feel like it's a Maybe a podcast for another time. Okay. But I, what I'm curious about, because you're, you're obviously one of the leading experts on that I know of on you know, literature in general. And I've talked to you before about the idea of work in literature. You know, when you think about work, when you think about literature, what are, what are some of the writers that wrote about work that come to your mind that you really loved? Well,
1: I mean, the, the one... There are a number. I mean, the one that I think about often, interestingly enough, is uh, Philip Roth. Who writes? I mean, you know, granted, many of his characters are writers, which is a particular kind of work. Although I'm not sure it's a piece of work that's suited to being mm-hmm. written about. But he also writes beautifully about you know grave diggers and you know glove manufacturers and things like that. And he did that. You know, he did that research, mm-hmm. and he um, and he pay, You know, he gives tribute to that. I mean, he does he gives tribute to that work? I mean, I think he takes the work seriously. I often think of him um, in that regard as a kind of
0: avatar of um, of writing about of writing about work. Mm-hmm. So did you have a job that you hated along the way that you never want to think about again? I've had many jobs I hated along the way, but you know, one of the one I hated the most, I'm actually writing about
1: now. So, Oh, um, which one? I worked in this uh, when I was 18, I worked for about a month and a half doing construction on a uranium mine in South Texas. So I've been writing about that cuz I've been writing partially. I'm not comp- yeah, I've been writing about that experience. I'll just yeah, I'll say that.
0: So. Okay, well, why 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 all of a sudden?
1: Oh, well, I'd always wanted to write about the experience. I mean, I always, but for a long time, I'd wanted to write about the experience of being in Texas. I mean, this will bring us back to what you didn't want. What you were the other podcast for reasons of exile and all that kind of stuff. But I, you know, when I lived down there, nineteen seventy nine eighty, like this winter of seventy nine eighty, it was the most foreign place I'd ever been in my life, and in many ways remains the most. I mean, that experience remains kind of the most foreign experience I, uh-huh. I, I ever had and i was fascinated by it i was completely a stranger in strange land you know really just as out of my element as could be imagined um, but i was interested and i paid a lot of attention i hated it and there was a lot of culture clash i had a boss who you know as soon as he found out i was a, I was a private school boy from new york so as soon as he found out i was you know a, a private a privileged kid from the northeast he made it his mission to kind of just see how far he could push me. Mm. But I was also like an, an obnoxious 18-year-old kid. So I was like, I don't care. Throw whatever you want yeah. at me you know, I'll do it. So we started with a work crew of four. Gradually, over the course of a couple of weeks, he transferred each of the others to, you know, so after about three weeks, it was just him and me. And then I'd get to work, and he'd be like, all right, today we're going to dig, you know, a 40-foot ditch, two feet deep, two feet wide, and we're going to lay PVC pipe. And I was like, great, let's do it. And, you know, today we're going to dig out the platform for a liquid hydrogen tank, you know, whatever it was. I was like, fine, I'm there, let's do it. And then one day, I can't remember why, I was applying, I, I'd taken a year off and I was applying to college and I had to go see a doctor. I think I had to get like a, I can't remember the specifics now, but I think I had to get like him to sign off on a medical form for mm-hmm. a, so I took the morning off from work and I drove to the nearest, we were in this tiny little town, we drove, I drove to the nearest town, which is a town called Bevel, which is like 30,000 people, it was like the metropolis to go see the doctor. And on my way back, I was like, I don't ever have to go back to that job. So I got home and I quit by phone that afternoon. I was like, "I'm not coming back." And it, but it was interesting. I and then we left at shortly. I mean, I had took got another job at an auto parts store, and then after a little while, we left and, and went to California. But I it was fascinating for a couple of one and you know I I didn't realize. Until that morning, until I actually got out of it for a morning that I could just, I could say, no, I'm not doing this. I could, I could walk. I'd already made, it was really cheap living there. I'd already saved up a bunch. Of, I'd saved, certainly saved enough money to get myself to California where I was going to get another job anyway. Um, but I had the freedom. I didn't realize I had the freedom until I stepped outside of it for, um, for, for, an hour, for a morning. And... That was fascinating. I hated that job, but there was something about that experience, about both about the whole Texas experience, and even really the experience of, of working in that.
0: Well, I feel like we have to on. go there then, because you know, exile is such a big part, and I, and I think this will be the last question. And we can well, I'll leave it with this, but what has the feeling of exile had? How did that impact your creative process?
1: I've always had a feeling. I mean, I am an exile. <clears throat> I don't, and I don't mean just physically. I mean, I, I like to define myself as an exile. Um, as my uh, let's say I like to define my situation in Los Angeles as one of exile because I'm a New Yorker who you know in mm-hmm. exile um, I, I like that idea it, it pleases me but it's also a complete um, uh, it's a complete intellectual contrivance in a certain way but it's a contrivance that's kind of worse for me where it's real though is I am congenitally an existential exile I am fundamentally aware at all times of my own um, isolation my own separateness Um, which is not to say that I'm, you know, antisocial or any of those things, although sometimes I am. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I like people. I like hanging around with people. I like my friends. I like my family. I like community. I like all of these things. These things are all really important to me. But at the end of the day, I'm my own. I'm me. I'm alone. Mm -hmm. I'm alone. This is one of the reasons I love literature, because it affords us for a brief moment while we're reading the direct first-hand experience of the inner life of another individual, right? We're reading their language. We're reading their thoughts in their own language. Mm-hmm. Um, I love other art forms for, for a lot of other reasons, but literature is the one art form that offers us that direct connection to the inner life of another person. And that sense of of, of, of communion, let's say, or empathy is... I find it nowhere else. Um, I, you know, even, <clears throat> even my loved ones are, you know, I, I, I know them, but I only know them to, a, to the extent that I know them. There's, you know, they're they, uh, different things. There's stuff going on inside them that I will never know. There's stuff going on inside me that, I'll, that they'll never know. So I think we're all existentially in a kind of state of exile because we're all sort of alone together in a certain way. And so for me, that metaphor of exile is kind of useful um, because it describes in some way a kind of physical or a residential condition, but it really fundamentally describes, let's say, uh, you know, an existential condition.
0: And I think a lot of people that I've interviewed and you know, a lot of the people I've talked to who are struggling going through the creative process trying to find it, I think that maybe that communion you're talking about is something they're after as a creative. Would would you say that's true?
1: I think it's probably true. I think it's the one thing that it offers us. And I think that, you know, again, I mean, the one thing I would say about that, which took me a long time to learn. And I don't think I, I mean, there's still, I still don't know it fully is it means no posturing right so mm-hmm. uh, in order for that thing to work you have got to be laying it out and i don't mean just in terms of like autobiographical writing it's true in fiction it's true and mm-hmm. right but you got to you've got to be laying it out you've got to be doing what you're you, you can't be pulling your punches or trying mm-hmm. to like impress somebody or talk you know show yourself up as as cool or you know mm-hmm. or whatever or writing for revenge or writing to get back at somebody or writing to make like make points you know you mm-hmm. have to be producing the work that needs to be produced and if it makes you uncomfortable so much the better but you have to be able to put that in there because we're readers are smart we're all and you know, we all know when someone's faking it so the the basic condition of that communion is that the the artist It's not just true of writers the artist can't be faking it and so that's an interesting role to play and that's a high standard to hold yourself to um, and sometimes, you know, it's really hard to sort of push through stuff that you, you know, it's not uh, this isn't very good or this is really embarrassing, or do I really want to say that? Or I look like an idiot, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all that stuff has to go in. And then, I mean, obviously you're shaping it. It's not just undigested, but you know, if you're not. If you're backing away or kind of framing yourself in a certain way or framing that story or that experience in a certain way for, mm-hmm. for an anticipated effect rather than letting it kind of come out in the way it needs to, then that the falseness prevents the communion. So the communion only happens when it's when it's real.
0: Great. Well, David, thank you so much for being a guest on the Working Poet Radio Show. It was a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. I, was, I really enjoyed being here. Great.